0: So I'm going to skip a few years if you've been following the stories of Sid at the beginning of these sermons. Uh, We started second grade, eighth grade. I'm moving to 23 years old. Okay. Uh, High school and college, I'm sure we'll get some great stuff later. Uh, But I was 23 years old and I was pretty scared. I arrived at the ivy-soaked campus in a t-shirt and shorts with a few boxes of books, a few duffel bags stuffed with clothes, a blue pleather recliner that I was fond of no longer with us. And a head full of swelling insecurities. I was 23 years old. I just graduated from this fine institution, Davidson College, and I was slated to teach Latin. My worst college subject, by the way. I don't know how I got a job in that. Maybe that's heartening to seniors here. Um, I was teaching Latin uh, to students who were less than five years younger than me. And I was at an all-boys prep school. It was a coat and tie, which means, like, blazers and khaki pants and decorative neckties. And um, my fellow faculty constantly reassured me with a hand on the shoulder that, uh, that they had children my age. <laughs> that you were like a little baby, <laughs> basically. That's what they told me. Uh, so I felt like this 6-year-old drowning in an XXL 17-by-49-by-38-inch suit. Uh, suit jacket, suit pants, the whole set, and I was just swimming. And so, as you can imagine, I did what many of us would have done in that situation, will do in that situation, have done in situations like that. I took a personal inventory. Okay, I started thinking, what about me exudes maturity and sophistication? Okay, you can tell. Um, How could I convince my students, and especially my teaching peers, that I was both intelligent and had a sort of world-weary wisdom. (laughs) So how could I cultivate and maximize these attributes by minimizing what I thought was my youth and sinning ignorance? And I just remember the first thing that must go, the immediate minimize that I needed to do was my Christian faith. No one could find out, no one needed to know that I had become a Christian just a few years ago at college, that I read the Bible, went to church on the regular, I certainly did not want to share that spiritual part of myself or foundation of me. And I felt ashamed just thinking about speaking about my fuller self. Just thinking about speaking about my Christian perspective on something in the faculty lounge or a dinner out with these people who were as old as my parents. And so I went spiritually undercover. I became a crypto-Christian. Okay, not because of overt persecution, not because of some grander biblical operation. But I went spiritually under the covers because I was scared. I think we can all think of a situation where we didn't feel up to the task. Right? I mean, maybe it was like a summer job, an internship that you just did, where they gave you like a ton of responsibility, and your middle-level manager was nowhere to be found to give you directions. Or maybe it was a sports team, or it is a sports scene that you feel lucky to get on, that you walked on, and you feel reluctant to practice with because you feel so bad. Or class, maybe now, maybe in the past, that demanded so much time and so much energy and so much intelligence, you just felt like you break into a sweat thinking about it. Or perhaps that feeling is what we feel right now. Week four, Davidson College. You just haven't felt up to the first few weeks at Davidson, whether this is your first year or your fourth year or your third year or second. The papers and tests <laughs> all of a sudden come fast and furious, all of a sudden last week, this week, like out of nowhere, right? Your social scene feels in flux, you're not sure who your real friends are, and your family either feels really, really far away or way too involved in charting your success. Let alone the seniors here who are looking at May and asking themselves what's next. In Judges chapter 4, we see Barak thrust into a situation he doesn't feel up to. He looks at the 900 iron chariots, the extreme cruelty of Sisera, the full-time farmers and part-time would-be warriors at his side. And Barak is head under the covers afraid. In fact, our passage this week highlights Barak's reluctance. What took a single phrase in the life of Othniel or the life of Ehud and the Lord raised up a deliverer for them? That's all it took. In this passage takes the better part of five verses. Barak's call takes five verses because he is fitfully and fearfully protesting. You see, Deborah speaks God's words to him in a situation that is ripe for action, for him to do something about it. But at Barak, initially he waffles, he hesitates. But God meets Barak in that weak moment and strengthens him. So that Barak shows up and he defeats 900 iron chariots, Sisera and Canaan, with some substantial, and we're going to talk about this, problematic help from jail. But the question for us tonight is this, and it's two questions. What are God's words and circumstances calling us to do right now? What are God's words and circumstances calling us to do now? And if that feels daunting, which it should, arguably, how will God move us from fear to faith? How is God going to move us from fear to faith in that moment? These are the two questions that are going to get, this kind of guide our discussion of Judges, chapter 4. And so let's continue to put ourselves into the story uh, that is ultimately not about a foreign people in a far flung land fighting a foreign power. It's ultimately about God, and how God moves among his people, then and now. So we're going to take this in three parts. Shocking. First, I'm in mean the Trinities, anyway. Um, <laughs> first, verses 1 through 3, we take in God's certain style with us. Okay, we're going to take in God's certain style with us as we look at this passage. Second, in verses 4 through 10, we're going to take in, God's curious call to us. So God's certain style with us, God's curious call to us. And then third and finally, verses 14 through 23, we're going to take away God's compassionate ways for us. So that's all in your handout. I'm not going to repeat that. It's just in the very bottom. If you have a handout, you can look there. Um, And as usual, we're going to begin with the beginning. We're going to look at the first three verses, and we're going to look at God's certain style with us. Okay, so if you've been here for a large group the last couple weeks, or if you've read the book of Judges before, you're going to immediately notice that these <laughs> verses sound very, very familiar. Uh, the people of Israel at debt again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord sold them again to an enemy. This time, Jabin and Sisera of Canaan for 20 years. This time, two more than last time, 18 years, which was 10 more years than the previous time, which was 8. Okay. Uh, and they're sold into the situation because doing what's evil is what the Bible calls idolatry. Building our lives, building our identities on things or on people that cannot, that we cannot get and or cannot keep. That's what idolatry is. It's building our identities on things that we cannot get and that we cannot keep. And this is almost nonstop. Uh, it's a self-construction project that has been sanctified in the last 20 years, and it comes naturally to humanity anyway. To human beings, whether it's 3,000 years ago in the last 20 years, we, whether we're self-identified Christians or not me, um, to all of us this is what happens naturally. Okay, But thankfully God's rescue, highlighted in verses 4 through 23, actually also is just as repetitive. Freeing us from the physical and emotional toil and toll of slavery or oppression, that comes supernaturally to God. That's in his wheelhouse. Okay? But here's my thing. We can't actually always do this one-to-one simple correspondence, this application about how God treats ancient Israel to how God treats modern us. It's problematic. Do you start to see this? So here, you'll hear this if you haven't heard this before. Sometimes well-meaning religious people get on local access television or giant channel television, and they will point to international threats like North Korea or natural disasters like hurricanes, I don't know, Harvey and Irma, and they will say that God has handed America over because of our sins or idolatry. Have you heard that before? People heard that before? And these same religious people will point to the Old Testament in passages like Judges, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, to justify these kind of claims. But I want you to understand this if you take away nothing else. That is a total misreading of the Bible. That's a terrible reading of the Bible. Yes, in the Old Testament, people of God are identified with the nation of Israel, and the consequences of their collective actions are felt collectively as a nation, right? This is because the nation of Israel collectively made a covenant. They collectively made a vow to God that they would worship him alone and they would follow all of his commandments. And in return, if the nation of Israel as a whole did what they vowed to do, they would receive blessings. And the blessings would look very physical. They would look like fruitful land. They would look like long life. They would look like offspring. But if Israel as a whole did not do what they vowed to do, they would receive curses. And this is what you need to understand. The curses look like three things. Disease, famine, and da-da-da-da, foreign oppression. Okay? So I would direct you, if you're curious about this, to look more at Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 29 and 30. That is a key text to understand how to read this passage in the Old Testament uh, up until Judges. But, okay, in the New Testament, the people of God are identified with the church, The church is a far more multi-ethnic, multinational people group than ancient Israel was. And by his perfect life, Jesus has kept the vows of obedience for those who trust he did. And by his sacrificial death, Jesus has taken the curses of our disobedience for us. Okay, This means, take away, ready, here we go, we're landing the plane, Okay, (laughs) North Korea's nuclear arms, and the hurricanes flooding of Texas and Florida are not, I repeat, not God handing the US over to the consequences of America's collective immorality. Okay? Instead, these are things are the results of a natural world and a dictator's heart that don't work the way they're supposed to work. Okay? And they need what's promised. Jesus' full future restoration. And so, really, what I would ask us to do is when we see these international conflicts, when we worry about these natural disasters, let's groan together. And let's ask a very good question. Where is God in the midst of all of this? Where is God in the midst of all this? And that, I can't answer right now. But I can talk to you about it over coffee, or lunch, or a small group. So I'm happy to do that. okay? But I also want us to... At the same time that we ask that hard question, I want us to groan and pray, if this is where we are, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come again to this world as you promised and mend it back to the way it's supposed to be. That's where we are. That was a side of trail. And we're back to our passage. That's verses 1 through 3. But here's the thing. The question of where is God in all of this does actually lead us to reconsider our circumstances freshly, right? What if God is up to something here? What if He's up to something now? What if God intends to call us to call you and me into His present tense rescue efforts that are afoot? And so we begin point two, okay? Point two: God's curious call to us, as seen in Barak's life, verses four through ten, okay. Alright, I'm going to transition, but I will say, if you have questions about point one, I just throw a lot of stuff at you, I'd love to talk to you about it. Okay, point two, here we go. Barak hears God's call to him through the lips of Deborah. Okay, Deborah's a prophetess, and she dwells between Ramah and Bethel, the hill country of Ephraim, which is probably about three to seven miles north of Jerusalem. It's tight quarters in Israel, okay? So three to seven miles north of Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, God literally spoke through prophets and prophetesses, And they speak for God. And so they can do two things. They can foretell. Like verses 9 and 14, Deborah predicts the future. She predicts Barak's victory. She predicts Sisera dying in the hands of a woman in jail. And prophets at the same time can foretell. They can foretell prediction and foretell. Like in verses 5 through 7, Deborah is deciding cases. She's receiving pleas for God. And when she, she gets to call out Barak, and say, hey, you need to go out and lead Israel against Sisera. And this is how she puts it. It's a really pointed question. Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 people from Nepali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. He's saying it's. Never saying, like, it's a done deal. Just sign on the dotted line. Right? Okay, we're we tracking. But here's what I love about this passage. What I love is, like, so human. I, like, just need Barak in my life, okay? <laughs> Barak is in Hebrews 11. He's in the hall of faith. He is mentioned of one of the few judges. He's the one mentioned. And I want you to see this the way that Barak hears God's very words addressed to him personally. And he intimately knows the situation and the need there. 20 years, cruel oppression, Canaanites. There's a need for a deliverer to rescue them. But Barack basically <laughs> says to Deborah this. This is my authorized paraphrase. Ready? Well, Deborah, thanks so much for asking. I really appreciate that you go out there and ask me. I really appreciate it. But you first. I'll jump off Mount Tabor if you jump off t- Mount Tabor first. I promise I'll follow. Pinky swear." Fingers crossed. Okay? Or more literally, I, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Okay? Look, here's the thing. Barack is a smart man. He is doing the math. He has a citizen army with pots for helmets and pans for shields and maybe a few pitchforks and an iron poker or two to stab with. Okay? And he's going against Sisera. And Sister has the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of an intercontinental ballistic missile. Okay, he's got 900 war-tested, iron-plated, smart-bomb chariots. <laughs> okay? And we can tell, when this math is being done in by peroxidation, we can tell that his answer isn't what God or Deborah was hoping for. Because in verse 9, and this is what I like to assume, I like to assume there's this long sigh, an eye roll, and then a review. I will surely go with you. There, they are. Nevertheless, the road in which you go- are going will not lead to your glory. The Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Look, for that time in that culture, Deborah just insulted Marok's military might. Okay. But I also want you to notice at the same time, and I think this is where I have to take away a little bit of my patronizing tone. God, through Deborah, also comforts Barak. Okay. Please notice that God meets Barak how he is. He is afraid. He's perhaps slightly peeing himself at the thought of Cicero. Okay? He is stubbornly frozen in place, digging in like a donkey. Okay? And God does the opposite of what we think God should do. He does the opposite of what we think he's going to do. He does the opposite of what we would do. We would have a casting call, and Barak would show up, and we'd be like, next... Next. And God goes, oh, that was terrible. Yes, yes, you're my man. Come on in, right? That's exactly what he does. God loves Barack where he is. And God loves us where we are. Me, where I am. You're afraid. I'm stressed. We're overwhelmed. Again. We're feeling less than, less than. We're tired at the thought of. Again. God loves you right there at that juncture, at those times and those places where we just feel like we're letting everyone else down, and perhaps most of all, we're letting down ourselves. (coughs) You don't have to become something or someone more to get at God's love, to get more of God's love. You can fail your friends. You can fail your parents, you can fail yourself, you can fail Davidson, you can fail God. Because Davidson's like a person, right? <laughs> a wildcat mother. Anyway. Um, you can tremble like a child on the high dive for the first time, knees knocking, bleeding for help. And God will climb those white plastic stairs and come and give you a hug. Look, I love the way that Robert Farrar capen puts it. He compares God's love. He says it works like the perfect fire department. Okay, it works like the perfect fire department. They want, the perfect fire department wants to prevent fires, so it teaches us basics, like not to store oil-soaked rags next to heaters, right? (laughs) Because that causes fires. But when the siren goes off, no matter what, it, it turns out that the fire is at your house, which has been cited for violations 20 times, and it's caught on fire three times in the last week. What do you think that the fire department does, even a bad fire department? So they drive by their shiny, red rescue truck and say, hey, we can see your house is on fire. We have gallons upon gallons of water. But you've done this one time too many. And we're going to have to let the place burn down, preferably with you. <laughs> no! Of course they don't do that. They put out the fire as quickly as they can, because as much as they care about fire prevention Their main job is fire or rescue. It's their first and their primary business. (laughs) It's the same way with God. It's the same with God, with Barack, and with you and me. Rescue is God's first and primary business. God loves us where we are. If you ask, and often when you don't ask, he will rescue you as many times as it takes, no matter how and where you are. Listen to the way that Paul, if you don't believe me, Put it in Romans chapter 5. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Right? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son Jesus. Do you hear the description? Not very flattering. God's love is in that business. It's that free. It's that no strings attached. It's that without a catch. It's the rescue business. And as I said, and God underlines, God can fully love us this way where we are because Jesus, the only person, only human being who ever lived as we should be, he died in our place as a substitute, one life for our lives. But that very same love, what's so interesting, that very same love that freely rescues, that love actually powerfully changes us as well. (laughs) It actually changes us as well. Listen to the words of the writer Anne Lamont. God's love meets us where we are, but does not leave us where it found us. God's love meets us where we are, but it does not, thankfully, leave us where it found us. God's love, through Jesus, is free enough to meet us where we are. But it's also powerful enough to not leave us where it found us. It's comforting to us, who are sometimes scared to death and overwhelmed. But it's also challenging to us. It pushes us to obey even then it's to fear. True love is like this great friend, right? The kind of friend that we wish we all had, who doesn't just blanket endorse all of our decisions good and bad. Hey, you're doing great, awesome, well done. It accepts us as we are, but then disagrees and challenges us within that acceptance, Okay, But we can receive this challenge, do you get this? And this is, we don't believe this. We can receive this challenge in the context of an unconditional relationship. God is asking for us to move, even as he promises he will always sit with us when we're scared stiff. And we see this in Barak's life, right? God, through Deborah, encourages Barak that he would not be left, he would not be forsaken. She goes with him. And so Barak responds, because of that unconditionality, he responds to God's challenge, and doesn't stay frozen. Verse 10 tells us that Barak called out to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Barak musters the pots and pans, weekend warrior army. Okay, He moved from fear into faith. And he was probably very still very afraid. Okay, But he moved. He trusted, even weakly, that God would go before him and fight for him. And here's the thing. This is what we don't understand about faith, whether, we're, whether we call ourselves Christian or not. Faith is less about a feeling than it is about hearing and obeying God's call. Barack's heart may not have changed instantly from fear to courage. Like, look at verse 14. He still needs Deborah to kick him in the rear and tell him to charge down Mount Tabor. But Barack <laughs> listened to God's words for a particular circumstance, and he did them. sometimes faith is saddling up, as John Wayne likes to say, even when you're fearing feeling afraid. And Barak listens to God's words in a particular circumstance and do it in faith. And faith is a piece, a part of the way that God actually accomplishes his compassion victory. Over the Canaanites then, and maybe even in Texas and Florida and Davidson now. That's point three. Mm -hmm. We're on point three here. Okay? Look, as I just referenced, God uses Deborah and Barak's faith in his words, to give decisive command at just the right moment, right? And this is the command of verse 14 that leads to this lopsided victory in verse 15. And the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and all of his army before Barak by the edge of his sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. God's hand in verse 15 causes a total victory. This total victory is seen even more in the original Hebrew. In the original Hebrew, we see the word for routed is actually to cause panic or throw into panic, the word hamam. And the word hamam in the rest of the Old Testament is oftentimes used when God brings a thunderstorm. And this is confirmed by a parallel passage, Judges chapter 5, verses 4, 10, and 21. God sends a rainstorm. Okay? And so this is the reason that Barak's like pots and pans foot soldier army actually wins. Okay? Okay? Because the charge worked so well, because exactly at that moment God sent a thunderstorm that flooded the clay soil of the plain of Estradon near Mount Tabor. You get that? The Kishon River, which was more of a wadi, which is like a dry ditch, overflowed, and the ground became a swamp, and made chariots, especially heavy iron-covered chariots, completely ineffective. As if that were not enough evidence that God is behind-the-scenes MVP on the (laughs) win, verse 23 tells us point blank. God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. But here's the thing. God subduing Jabin and the Canaanites doesn't just include this gallant downhill charge, a timely downpour. It also includes what Jael did. What are we supposed to make of verses 17 through 21? What are we going to make of them? Okay, let me, I'm going to recreate the scene. Okay, so Jael, soothingly, maybe even seductively, answers the tent in her best nomadic pearls and high heels. She invites Sisera in for a thick drink and a midday snooze on her softest patch of earth, a case sleeper sofa. <laughs> she covers him with a woolly blanket slash rug. Then ever so gently, Jael, the wife of Haler, took a tent peg, took a hammer in her hand, She went softly to him, drove the peg into the temple until it went down to the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness, and he died. Okay, did you catch that gory detail? This is my favorite. J.L. drove the peg into his temple until it went through his head into the ground. Okay, she swung that hammer with some force and I would argue some rage. The tent hammer and the tent peg... Were like the ancient Near Eastern household appliance. Did you realize this? That commonly ancient Near Eastern women were in charge of putting up and taking down the tents. Okay. So J. L. uh, killing Sisera here in this way was like so shocking, maybe even humiliating, in a way that like a 1950s Donna Reed in her pearls and high heels using a Hoover vacuum to bash in the head and blow out the brains of the ear of somebody sleeping on her couch. That's what's going on in the scene. But Sisera isn't just any old man, right, sleeping on a couch or soft piece of earth. According to Judges chapter 4, verse 3, and then again in chapter 5, that parallel passage, verses 28 through 30, Sisera enjoyed stealing, raping, and then enslaving Israelite and In other words, part of Sisera's cruel oppression was that he owned and operated an ancient Near Eastern female sex slavery. And so there's at least some poetic justice in jail killing a man who used women as objects with a set of womanly objects, a tent hammer and a tent peg, okay? And in Judges chapter 5, a text, again, that poetically addresses the same events that are in chapter 4, Judges 5 celebrates Jael's conduct. She lied, right? She broke a peace treaty. She killed somebody. She has horrific hospitality. She's heroic, And all I can say is, perhaps like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was jailed and executed for trying to kill Adolf Hitler in World War II, Jail felt that the confession about what she believed in, truths of God like justice and the preciousness of all genders and sexes, maybe, just maybe, she could no longer separate those in her heart and mind from an all-out stand against evil. Like Barack, but admittedly more complicated, Jail was called by God to help God accomplish His victory. In an occupation with your life and your sexuality on the line, it's extremely hard to know what would Jesus do. Just like other spots in life, that, argue. that said, most of us more often than not are in the position of jail rather than a position of barak rather than jail or Bonhoeffer. God's words are asking us to do something we're afraid to do. They beg the question, what are God's words and circumstances at foot in your life calling you to do? How will God move you from fear into faith in that position? Look, and I'm going to end with a story I began with. Minus a prophetess and 900 iron chariots. I felt a lot like Barack in that Ivy-coated coat and tie prep school um, job at 23 years old. I did not just feel afraid, I actually felt strangely called in my fear. You see, about a year into my crypto-Christian game of spiritual hide-and-seek, I met a friend named Jason who lived below me and taught in the high school with me. Jason and I almost immediately clicked, had an easy laugh, boy, that. was kind, was curious, so much so that he actually asked, started to ask me one day about what I believed religiously. And against my better judgment... I confessed that I was, in fact, religious, and maybe even Christian. And that stirred in him a curiosity. At first, we only chatted about church history or theology or philosophy of Christianity. But over the course of time, he began to ask more and more personal questions about my faith and how it applies to my life. I knew I was at one of those junctures. right? My faith and how it applied. It was a moment in a place where I felt so nervous about being embarrassed. I was so young, and I was in a world of such sophistication. But I also knew the Bible well enough to know that God had some words for my situation. I knew I needed to tell Jason what was the hope that I had within. me. Yes, it needed to be done humbly, for sure. Like, as one fellow explorer to another, as someone who confesses doubts and questions, as well as maybe possible answers, or at least clues. But I needed to be a public Christian and speak so I'll never forget, I waited until the very last minute. We were talking forever outside. And I waited until we were in this dark, weird, creepy staircase <laughs> that was going up to our apartments because he lived again below me. He was about to turn off to go to his floor. And I finally answered his question and lay out the truths about Jesus that I held dear. And I was so full of fears that this would ruin our friendship and that my intellectual reputation would be in shatters. But I spoke to Jason about Jesus. This is a true story. I started telling him about the cross and the resurrection and how that proves how God loves us as we are, that he doesn't leave us where we are, um, about a relationship that I couldn't lose despite myself, about a relationship that constantly nudged me to wanting to change. I just completely weakly acted out what I believed, but at just the right time and with God's strength. And it was a process for Jason. It was an instant but I think eventually my friend became a Christian. Looking back on that whole year or so, it's hard to believe that Jason became a Christian, and it's amazing if you think about it, to believe that I speak about Jesus for a living in public. <laughs> the credit belongs to God. So here's my questions: one. Where are you feeling free? Where is God asking you to step out? Is it in a relationship to comfort someone or to challenge someone? Is it pursuing a particular major, a particular job that the world needs? Is it saying no to another commitment? Is it saying yes to that commitment? Maybe it's just resting more in Jesus' love for where you are. Or maybe it's just rejoicing more and Jesus' love that won't leave you. Would you pray with me?